0: This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the latest Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I'm Matt Addison and ahead of Liverpool's Champions League last 16 first leg clash with RB Leipzig on Tuesday, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the Red Bull group once again. Last year, we spoke with Red Bull Salzburg boss Jesse Marsh. Well, there's plenty of links to Liverpool, not least Sadio Mane, Naby Keita and Takumi Minamino. Ralph Ranick might no longer be a part of the Red Bull project, but he's been instrumental for them over the last few years. And much of Jurgen Klopp's philosophy was based on his. There's also an even more contemporary link, which I'll be discussing in a short while, with the Echo's business of football writer Dave Powell as Red zone's Fenway Sports Group look to the next stage of their project within football. But first, here's a conversation with Karen Tejwani, the author of the brilliant book Wings of Change, which looks into how the Red Bull group work, how they made their mark in football, and with RB Leipzig now the pinnacle of the sporting conglomerate, it's the perfect time to take another in-depth look. Cameron, I'd like to to start with a a look really at the Red Bull group and sort of how that came about, really. Take us back to to the start, first of all. That was, in your book, one of the most interesting parts for me. It was sort of where they came from and and sort of the the mission of them when they first started up, really.
1: Yeah, they started off in 2005 um, with uh, the takeover of Red Bull Salzburg or Austria Salzburg, as they were known uh, before Red Bull took over. Uh, Obviously, Austria Salzburg were... A relatively struggling club in Austria. They didn't. They had a few they had a bit of trouble with uh, in terms of money, and they weren't able to, you know, take themselves to the next level. And they were almost going bankrupt in, in a way. Um, but they had a bit of history before that. Um, you know, they they played in the UEFA Cup final in the previous decade in, the 19, in 1994 um, against Inter, which they lost. And they had a bit of domestic history when they won a few league titles here and there. Um, but at the turn of the millennium, they were struggling and they didn't really have the means to get to the next level. Um, so it, it seemed natural that Red Bull would invest in them. Uh, Red Bull obviously had a bit of interest in sport. Previously, they, they mainly worked in uh, motorsport and winter sports, extreme sports. Um, but football was seen as, you know, the natural avenue for them to go to because of the natural reach of football itself. It's the most popular sport in the world. And um, that is what Red Bull thrive on, you know, getting that sort of attention and, you know, creating a brand for themselves. And so Austria Salzburg seemed like the natural choice because Red Bull were a Salzburg company. Uh, Dietrich Mateschitz, the founder of Red Bull, the co-founder of Red Bull, uh, was a, a Salzburg man. He was Salzburg born and bred. Um, he paid he paid his taxes in Salzburg. He lived in Salzburg. So it seemed right for him to go for the local club. Uh, now, when Red Bull saw, or when Austria Salzburg were taken over by Red Bull, they changed their name, their colours, their history, their stadium name. So you know, we all know how it was. And it was very controversial because people don't like being stripped of the identity or their football clubs being stripped of their identity so it wasn't a very popular move even though red bull were a local company um so they faced a bit of backlash there but um eventually it grew on them because of uh, it grew on most of them because of how red bull appeased to the local community um you know they they played the local songs the local anthems before matches and they tried to communicate with the fans more um and they were winning trophies that was the main part they were winning trophies they won the league title a couple of times between 2005 and 2010 or 11 when the structure changed um but but initially it was a tough start for them and um after salzburg they they moved over to the u.s uh with the new york red bulls in 2006 uh that was seen as a company that, that was done due to a combination of factors be, uh, where uh red bull identified the usa as a strong football market and they also identified it as a strong energy drink market so it was a combination of those two coming together and then in 2007 they moved to brazil in 2009 they moved to germany in controversial fashion
0: yeah i mean there's lots of sort of links with liverpool with all of of those teams of course and i suppose it sort of ties in with how it works as well how do those sorts of teams work together as one big Red Bull group, because even though they're individual clubs, there is sort of links between them as well, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there is. There's always been a link between uh, all of them. And the biggest link has come between Salzburg and Leipzig, um, wherein they trade ideas, they trade players, coaches, and, you know, try to help each other out, even though they're in different divisions and different uh, structures. Um, but but that has that been a topic of controversy for them, uh, where people feel it's unethical to do so because it gives these two teams an advantage and that is true but but the main part where it changed for them where this trading of players and ideas became a big thing was in 2012 when ralph and joined and changed the whole structure of these clubs of the red bull clubs of all of them not just not just the ones in europe um so that was a turning point for the group you know before 2012 they were winning trophies red bull salzburg um but there was no clear long-term vision for them it wasn't a sustainable vision and they were paying a lot of money to uh to overage players so people couldn't see a long-term future and the same for leipzig where they were struggling in the fourth and fifth uh, fourth third and fourth division of german football um so they weren't able to progress up the divisions you know the, the common misconception is that they had an easy rise because they had a lot of money but they had a bit of struggle because they didn't have the right people in charge obviously they had a lot of money and a lot of resources but they weren't able to put that into practice until ralph Rania came in and changed the whole structure
0: yeah, Ranić of particular interest, of course, because of his influence on Jurgen Klopp and, and Liverpool. And I suppose without Ralph Ranić, we probably don't see Jurgen Klopp at, at Liverpool or certainly not the same Jurgen Klopp that Liverpool fans have come to, to know and love.
1: Yeah, possibly. Um, uh, Klopp obviously had a different education too, Ranić. He grew up in the mind system under Wolfgang Frank, um, who is a similar uh, manager to uh, to Ralph Ranić. Uh, They all grew up with the same footballing identity of going away from the traditional German sweeper system of the 90s. Um, You know, they won the World Cup in 1990 and Germany felt that the sweeper system could last them forever. But that wasn't true because at the time, tactics were changing. Um, And from the end of the 1990s until the start of the 2000s, German football really struggled, despite reaching a World Cup final in that period. You know, they didn't really have a long-term future playing the sweeper system. So it wasn't until Ranick and a few of these other people came around and implemented a new philosophy that, that German football started to excel once again. You know, at, at the Euros in 2004, they finished bottom of their group, um, and 10 years later they won the World Cup. Now that could largely be attributed to uh, the work of Ralf Ranick and Jurgen Klopp and Wolfgang Frank, and several of these people who changed the German football ide- footballing idea. And you know, you can see this trend with, with this modern Liverpool team where Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool are fans of these Red Bull players. Uh, Joel Matip didn't play for Red Bull, but he played for Schalke under Rennick. Uh Keita was signed from Leipzig. Mane was signed from Southampton, who previously played for Salzburg. And um, Minamino was signed last year from Salzburg and he moved to Southampton now. So you can see why Klopp uh, likes these players. It's because they play in a similar way and there's a similar footballing idea ingrained in these players.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're gonna talk a little bit about Diotopumakano and Ibrahima Kanate shortly. But are there sort of any other players that, that stand out probably more at Salzburg and Leipzig that potentially will move on to a, a bigger club soon, do you think? Possibly even Liverpool?
1: You could say the whole team actually, all or both starting elevens are are doing incredibly well. Obviously, we saw Schaberslei move from Salzburg to Leipzig this winter. Um that I feel is just a start. Um Huang also moved last summer. But at Leipzig, you could see players like Sabitzer, Tyler Adams, uh, um, Diopo McConaughey, obviously, uh, Peter Golashi. They, they all have the quality to play at this level um, because they have this idea um, of playing a modern attacking vertical way. So there's a lot of talent across both teams. And you could easily say that a lot, a large majority of the players who consistently start for these two clubs could easily make the jump anywhere in Europe Patson Daka has been mentioned a lot. Um, sort of Cico Kuita this season, who's been exceptional with his goal scoring. He's got, he's got about twenty-two odd goals, I think. Um, so there's a lot of players on both teams who could easily make the jump to anywhere in Europe.
0: I think probably Upa and Kanati are the ones that sort of stand out in terms of of Liverpool, not least because they probably need to sign a centre back when it comes to the summer. I mean, those are are two big names, but they have relatively modest release clauses heading into the summer. How sort of highly rated? Are they? And, and do you think they would be both tailor-made for a Premier League club?
1: Yeah, both of them for sure. Upa uh, gets naturally gets more of the attention because he was great last season and he's, he's done similarly well this season. But I, I, at the time when Konate was consistently fit and you Kunate know, has missed the last season and a half due to injury, he's missed most of the last season and a half due to injury. Um, but I, I always felt that Konate is the more capable one out of him and Upa Mekano, but due to injury he's not been able to show that. Uh, but there's no denying that both of them are great players and they will have good futures in the game. Um, Uke Meccano has been linked to almost the, of every top Premier League club. Um, but I do think he moved to Bayern Munich in the end. That, is, that seems like the natural move for him. And it seems like, like the right move, you know, staying in the same environment. I still do feel that he has some, um I don't want to say deficiencies in his game, but are, he is lacking in some areas. And that was exposed in the Champions League, especially against Manchester United when they lost 5-0 and he was all over the place. Um but but uh, they are two. They're definitely two good players, and they have good futures in the game for sure. Konaté, I think, still needs a little more time, uh, you know, to get back into full fitness and maintaining that level of fitness. Um, he's obviously a very talented footballer, and hope it works out for him. But he needs a bit of time, I suppose.
0: Yeah, still a, a long way to, to go in both of their careers. And it's yeah. interesting you mentioned sort of Pat Sundacker as well, another one who is very young and, and very talented. He was part of the Red Bull Salzburg team, I think, who won the, the UEFA Youth League. I wanted yep. to sort of touch upon that. They won that in 2017 at a competition that I sort of keep my eye on with regards to, to Liverpool's youth teams. You sort of think of a, a bigger-name clubs in that competition. You think of Chelsea, a recent winners, or the, the Spanish giants Bayern Munich. But... You no, know, for a team such as Salzburg to to go all the way in that competition. I think they knocked out Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester City, Atletico Madrid possibly as well in, in that little yep. run that they had. I mean, you know, that's a, a big achievement for them, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is for sure. I think it's I always say that's the biggest achievement in Red Bull's footballing um era since two thousand five. You know, they've won league titles and the 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 Leipzig have gone to the Champions League semi-final, but I always feel that winning the youth league was the biggest achievement of their Red Bull uh, of the footballing uh, era they've had because it solidified and sort of legitimized uh, their youth philosophy. You know, Rania came in, in 2012 and he revolutionized the whole youth system. And five years later, which is a relatively short time, in, in five years, they won the biggest youth competition in football or in European football. Um, but it, it is a big deal for them. And Pats and Dakar was at the time he wasn't seen as a, a pretty big deal because he joined in the winter of 2017 and, and he didn't really have much time to spend with them. But he scored a few crucial goals. He scored in the semi-final, he scored the winner, I think, um, against Barcelona. And as you said, they beat some pretty big clubs, you know. When you think of Benfica, Barcelona, Chelsea, City, PSG, Atletico Madrid, they beat them all consecutively. And those are some of the biggest clubs and the most potent clubs in uh in Europe when it comes to developing young players. Um, you know, it's a fun snippet in 2017 when they beat atletico madrid at their home stadium that youth game uh more people attended that youth game than the senior team's next home game in the league so that just about shows how interested people were in youth football and when this whole new youth um youth centered approach came in 2012 with last people felt they weren't being serious about it but it's probably the most the, the thing that they, the fans they take the most pride in their youth than anything else in Salzburg. So. It's a pretty big deal for them and they, they, they take pride in their players going far in their careers
0: yeah especially when you know they're, they're known as a sort of selling club for for once of a yeah. better term it, it's really really crucial that they do that and it's interesting as well for me that, that Marco Rosa the, the Borussia Mönchengladbach manager at the moment being linked with Borussia Dortmund I believe over in Germany he was the manager at that time so it's sort of been a big rise for him as well that was a sort of marker, I suppose, something that he would look back and, and think that was possibly a big moment in his in his career as well.
1: Yeah, it was for sure. Um, you know, and that that was like the start of his very good uh, record in European football. You know, he won the Euro uh, the youth league in twenty seventeen. The next year, he was a Europe Europa League semi finalist with Salzburg, which is it's not a normal achievement for an Austrian club to go that far. And he's carried on with, in the Champions League with Gladbach now. Um, but, yeah, it was a start of a very good career for him, and he worked alongside some very good uh, assistant coaches, you know, Rene Maric, who's been... who's popular for running his blog, Um He got him from that blog, and, you know, they decided to work together, and obviously Rene Maric has gone from being a blogger online to now being a Champions League Round of 16 member uh, with Gladbach, and they're going to play against... uh with it's the Manchester City, yeah. But, yeah, they, they they've been doing quite well, and it was... It was a good start in Marco Rosa's career. He's still very young um, and I wouldn't be surprised in the future if he goes to Liverpool because of that similar line of thought, you know, maybe after Klopp leaves, he definitely should be the top target um, provided he does well at Dortmund.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, something I was going to ask you about as well. I mean, we talk about Julian Nagelsmann, obviously Steven Gerrard is going to be in the mix because he's Steven Gerrard and because he's doing a fantastic job at, at Rangers. But, you know, Marco Rosa is sort of one of those names that is a little bit under the radar. I mean, You'll know probably more than me. Is it is it inevitable that he goes to Borussia Dortmund next? And if you know two or three seasons down the line, could he potentially you know be a, a real contender? You think for for Jürgen Klopp's successor?
1: Yeah, Dortmund seems likely for him this season. Um, if, I'll be I'll be very surprised if he does make the move if Gladbach qualify for the Champions League and Dortmund don't, and he still makes the move. I'd be very surprised by that. Um, but it, it seems Taylor made for him the job. Um, but on, on top of Liverpool for sure. Yeah, um, I think that. If Klopp was to leave next year, which he won't, or if Klopp was to leave this summer, Rose or Nagelsmann would be the nat- the natural successor because of that line of thought they have with playing the game. But if it's 2024, which is when Klopp's contract expires, uh, Gerard has a bigger case. Hopefully by then he has a bigger career with Rangers or wherever he goes. Um, but I think those three would be the top targets, Rose or and Gerard, if they carry on the same way and they started in. Um, all three of them still very young and Liverpool could probably see them as being their long-term managers, you know, for the next maybe seven, eight years, like Klopp has been. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like the smarter thing to do, you know, targeting people like uh, Rosa or Nagelsmann. And um, Gerard. the job is for him, eventually. It's like it's, maybe Klopp's keeping the seat warm for him. Um, but if the deal, was, if Klopp was to leave anytime soon before 2024, I think Rosa or Nagelsmann would be the more, more logical option
0: yeah it's going to be fascinating to to sort of see how they get on as you're saying that the champions league last 16 versus Munch and gladbach coming up against manchester city so i think his uh, name certainly will be on the map if they could knock out pep guardiola's men but uh, just before we finish i'm aware we've done a fair bit of, of sort of praising the Red Bull group. And maybe they're not particularly popular in, in certain segments, particularly over in Germany. There's been lots of protests against them at, at times in Austria as well. And I think it would be only fair really to to sort of touch on that just before we finish. I mean, how do you think they should be viewed for for what they're doing, Red Bull? Do you see it as a, a positive thing? They they're putting investment in, they're they're making this sport better. And Is that not necessarily the case from, from everybody, as I say, over in the Bundesliga in particular, there's been some pretty vocal uh, speakers against what Red Bull are doing.
1: I can see why people dislike them. And to be quite honest, I personally, I'm personally on their side. Um, You know, there's often the confusion that I support what Red Bull do because I sort of wrote the book, but uh, I don't personally endorse what Red Bull do because of, in a way it's kind of impure, you know, you don't, you don't get joy in seeing clubs like RB Leipzig or Red or Red Bull Salzburg succeeding, whereas you get great joy in seeing clubs like Atlanta or Ajax because they've they've sort of uh, made it right from scratch. Um, you know, with RB Leipzig, they're they're the most notorious club in Germany right now, probably. And um, from their start or when they reached the Bundesliga, them breaking or circumventing the fifty plus one rule was probably the biggest sin in German football. You know, you don't get past those low r- rules and have an easy ride. So I can see why fans dislike them and their, their actions after that, where they sort of, in a way, silence fans at certain points. You know, German football is very vocal, very political, and they care a lot of, care a lot about societal issues. And at times there's been cases where RB Leipzig, the club, have wanted to silence their fans on talking about such issues. So, you know, silencing that fan fan voice is it's not a very popular move to make, and you can see why they're so disliked. Um, it's the same with, you could say, with City and PSG, where they've been taken over by a state and, um change the way the game is seen and game is and, and the way they spend and all that it's an unfair advantage they have uh just because they have such rich owners and it's the same for red bull as well and that rb leipzig so you know while you can celebrate their football achievements you can say that they have they're probably one of the best on clubs in europe from top to bottom it's also worth mentioning that they have an advantage that not many other clubs have so you know it's a bit of a mixed bag but i can see why i'm more on the side of why fans dislike them
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Thank you very much for for joining me. uh, Karen Tejuani, I should say, author of the brilliant book, Wings of Change. Do check that out if you are interested in reading a little bit more uh, about the Red Bull group. I'm certainly fascinated by it. And, you know, I I am being absolutely genuine when I say that it was a fantastic book. Really, really interesting stuff. Thank you very much for for coming on to the podcast.
1: No worries. Thank you so much for having me. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.
0: I'm joined now for the second part of the show by The Echo's business, of football writer, Dave Powell. Dave, I don't know about you, but the Red Bull group absolutely fascinates me. There's sort of a, a lot of financial power behind them. They don't mess about with investment and things like that. But there's been a lot of criticism of them as well. I mean, just first and foremost, where is it that you stand on what they're doing? Are you sort of broadly in, in favour of them or, or do you maybe look at them with
2: a little bit more scepticism? Um, it... I know they're deeply unpopular in, in Germany, um purely for the fact that you know the, the, the German model is um kind of fifty one forty-nine um at, at least in terms of kind of fan ownership or representation. But um while I'll be like to conform to that, there's a a whole different matter about the amount of members who, who vote towards those things, uh, some of them being Red Bull employees, etc. So it's a, they're deeply unpopular in, in Germany, but as a model, um you can see why other clubs want to replicate it. Um, I think it's something which drives huge value. I mean, you only have to look at some of the, the conveyor belt of talent, which they've managed to produce through um, the likes of FC Leafering and to Red Bull Salzburg, which kind of knocks on to RB Leipzig It's at the, at the very summit. But I think it's, um, it, it, it's a, a model which will ultimately, I think, be the one which follows uh, which which other clubs follow um moving forward because it in terms of market value it's it's phenomenal the amount of increase they get to see on players they get first uh, dibs on some of Europe's brightest and and, and best I mean Dominic Zabosla is a, a kind of most recent example of that I suppose um there's th- there's things in place there to make sure that both they and Salzburg can compete in the in the same competitions now but ultimately i mean it, they are all under the same umbrella so it's there's a there's a mutual interest along it but no i mean i suppose from a um a, a fan perspective i don't particularly like multi-club platforms uh, it, it doesn't seem to it doesn't really chime with with kind of the the ethics and, and kind of the, the moral duty of the game, I suppose. However, from a business point of view, um, it, it makes perfect sense. And you can see why so many clubs want to want to follow something similar.
0: I know there's been, obviously, as you say, a lot of sort of distrust almost of, of the group over in Germany in particular, where we know that, that fans have a great deal of power. But I mean, it, it's almost one of those things, isn't it, where I suppose you might look at it and think, well, if it happened to, to your football club and, and you were an RB Leipzig fan, today you've probably seen a a huge benefit from it i suppose they even might have been skeptical at the beginning but is it almost a a sort of tribal thing do you think where if you benefit from it then you're probably okay with it but if you're say hoffenheim who maybe were were slightly higher up the table before rb leipzig came in maybe you might look at it in a different way
2: i mean the the reason they, they chose leipzig in the first place was because it was a very small kind of provincial football club with limited um, pushback in terms of fans. It was, you know, it's a tiny football club, tiny region, um, and, and they've, they've been able to build that up. If they would have come in somewhere um, and, and tried to um, may, maybe, say, one of the, the kind of the lesser um, Berlin clubs, somewhere like Union Berlin or something, they would have never been able to push through what they wanted to. So that's, that's a reason why they kind of started off at the entry level, really. Um, you see it in, in this country, I mean, in terms of um, when people want to build something up and you look at Salford, you look at Fleetwood town and um, teams like that. I mean, that people tend to start where there is l- more limited resistance to affecting um, change. Um it's very, very difficult to do that at the top end of football. I mean, you wouldn't see uh, business coming in and, and changing the name of a football club um, from, from league one upwards. I don't think um, given the amount of pushback, um, certainly not in the premier league, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a tribal thing, but the, it, it depends how well you can separate the two things. I mean, for for, for Red Bull, uh, Salzburg and RB Leipzig, they did have a, a conundrum in terms of they both were playing the same competition, um, the Champions League um, last season. So so before that, they've had to kind of realign their relationship with each other um whereby the before it used to be more they were more closely aligned um because there was no crossover so you're allowed to own you know parts of two different clubs provided there's no conflict of interest but once there becomes a conflict of interest then you have to mean that that relationship is redefined so now it's purely in terms of uh, the paperwork side of it sponsorship only i suppose uh, and they have the same owner but that's the only things where where there is crossover, that's the reason why that you know Zbosla was never eschewing to go to to Leipzig. I mean, it was always going to be a preference because of um, the business model, but they couldn't force that move to happen because that would be affecting you know influence beyond what they should be. So, um, but yeah, in terms of a tribal thing, I think it's it'd be very it'd be a different if Liverpool went down that that particular route, it'd be a very different approach that that FSG would have to take because. Um, it, there would have to be clear separation between uh, you know, the, the, the kind of clubs they're doing. That's why a lot of the clubs, when I mean, you look at City Football Group, the teams which there's no real desire for uh, City Football Group to see Girona um, succeed in La Liga or, 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 or that type of thing, because Manchester City is who sits at the pinnacle of that. Um, Girona and all the other clubs are, and with Tro- uh, Chelsea, that they're, they're all clubs which just sit around the edges. um and are there to basically kind of foist your your top talent on, or, or the talent that you can't get work permits for, etc., or need to play x amount of games to obtain their work permit, or, or things like that. So, so it, there is huge benefits to these these relationships, um, but I don't think from you know Liverpool fans would would have too much to worry about in terms of um, having kind of another club, which is a direct competitor i think salzburg's success has probably um made things a bit more difficult for for red bull if anything um, because they, they, they've had to kind of redefine that relationship um from the very start
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned Soboslai there. Of course, Erling Haaland is a prime example of that as well. Obviously, went to Dortmund yeah. rather than Leipzig. And I suppose that is the, the case in point, isn't it? I mean, as you say, one of the, the reasons we're looking at the Red Bull group is sort of to tie in with potentially what could happen with Liverpool, with FSG in the future. I mean, you sort of touched upon it there. But what do you think Liverpool could potentially learn from the Red Bull group if they were to go down this route? There are obvious benefits to this, aren't there?
2: Yeah, the, the benefits are kind of being able to develop talent, um, be able to, there's a, a better talent pathway I mean, four clubs. They'd rather see their players playing in um, European leagues, uh, you know, such as whether it's, you know, Segunda B or, or things like that, um, because it's more competitive than playing under 23 football um, and it gives them a better grounding. Um, there's also the benefits of sharing, you um, Data analytics, uh, medical things, th- things like that. You know, the whole operation can be can be spread, and you can kind of share best practice. Um, but you, if you look at the record that uh, um, Red Bull have had with with Salzburg and RB Leipzig, I mean, there's, there's a club which sits at the bottom of that kind of chain, which is FC Liefering. Um, and if you look at the likes of Hadara, I think um, uh, Minamina was also sort of something similar. But I mean, Nabi Kater's been on that Salzburg route as well so the, uh, Upamecano was um, was Liefering then uh, uh, Salzburg and then RB Leipzig so there is a clear kind of development plan there where these guys are getting the grounding and then being able to be shifted up to the next level to the next level and and Red Bull when they move these players on see huge benefit um, or they keep the, the cream of the crop for themselves and that's allowed them to Spoil the party um, at the top of European football, and um, without having to outlay uh, too much, because they've they've invested their money elsewhere in terms of um, being able to to have their own conveyor belt of talent, which is unlike any other.
0: Yeah, I mean the the reason that the Red Bull have, have come into football is effectively to to promote their product isn't it it's sort of a a marketing campaign obviously that wouldn't be the case with FSG and with Liverpool it's a a very different situation but do you think you know you you mentioned Manchester City before that the City Football Group and and how Etihad have sort of gone down that route with them do you think this would ever be appealing to to FSG is this something that in say the next five or or ten years or whatever they might look at, at doing something like this because There are obvious benefits even if it it wouldn't necessarily be in the same way as the red bull group
2: i don't think it was but i think it is now um i I don't think they had a a real interest in it um, in seasons past but i think now they probably see um being the uh, well find a a way of putting it there that they count the pennies more closely than many other premier league owners Um, which is good in one sense because it allows them to ride out the implications of a global pandemic much better. They are in rude health financially, but also on the flip side of that is um, when you compare them to the rest of the teams chasing honors, they don't invest anywhere near uh, those amounts, um, which is going to come a point soon where they're going to have to. um, And they probably see this as being a way to maybe get the best of both worlds because if you look at RB Leipzig they're able to remain competitive without throwing exorbitant amount of money each summer um, at players. Um, ultimately they they end up getting their best players picked off them but that's because they still remain RB Leipzig and it's um, for, for any player, you know for the pinnacle of a player's career still now isn't playing for RB Leipzig it's it's either to, to join one of Europe's elite clubs you know so um I think the whole F, uh, the FSG interest in the Red Bull deal was very much centered around the possibility of multi club ownership and and having someone lead that as opposed to them really leading it. So Billy Beam was going to, you know, the idea was Billy Beam was was, was going to um, lead this kind of expansion of a of a portfolio within um, Red Bull and FSG. But I mean, that's still the, the plan for wherever they go next. And um, I, I wouldn't rule out the Premier League, I'm honest, but. Um, it's something which is of of interest to them now because I think they see the value in it and it's, you know, you can, and and where there is value for an investment and a return on investment, that's where FSG come into play. And I think that's why um, I think in the next five years, you'll probably see um, the first few shoots of this happen. I mean, Jerry Cardinal is is still interested in investing in, in Liverpool. And to me that, that kind of suggests a, the possibility. He already owns through his Redbird Capital Partners, private equity firm, um, Toulouse, so French second division. Um, there's obvious if, if Cardinal invests in Liverpool, there's an obvious potential tie in there, um, whether, you know, whether Redbird decide to come in and, and, and partner in that respect. So it, the, I think it is something which Liverpool will ultimately um, explore. And I think eventually it will be something which a lot of the big clubs are doing just by uh, you know i mean the idea of feeder clubs has been knocking around since um the early 90s really i mean i'm you know uh, from you know my club um, i'm a boy a kind of chester fc fan and, and they were they, they were mooted as being um manchester city's feeder club for a number of years that was always a tie and they were searching, seeking to find so these things aren't new and um, these these are relationships which but now the relationships change because there's so much money involved and and getting around kind of Brexit rules and, and European rules, I think it's going to come even more important. So I think that Brexit may even accelerate Liverpool's interest in this in order to to kind of get their hands on the best European players.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention Brexit as well. I mean, Liverpool have, have targeted younger players. You think of Seth Vandenberg, Matis Moussoulowski was last summer. I mean, these sorts of players, I don't think Liverpool would have been able to sign them because now the Brexit rules that have come into play and in, the start of this calendar year I mean is this a way around that if Liverpool say were to to have a feeder club elsewhere is that a way of almost circumnavigating the the rules and, and regulations really
2: yes yes I think it is because um signing players now is going to require um I mean for the most part if you're signing big players and you're Liverpool and you're paying money Brexit's not going to make much of a difference because all the players are going to meet the criteria. And I think it's 15 points they have to reach in order to qualify. Um, And point scoring is based on things like um, international cap, status of the club you're signing from, their league, where, where the club were last season, the status of your own club. So all these things, it's very easy for Liverpool to sign players and get to 15 points. But the issue comes in when players are younger. Um, so the, the the criteria is far more strict. Um, so I think that this may be a way to certainly if you're looking at 17, 18 year olds. I mean, and these are these are hot property across Europe now. So you look at Jude Bellingham, Jaden Sancho, um, uh, Midwiki, at um, PSV, players like that um they are although i've given you three english examples there so it wouldn't particularly you know matter but that's they're just three examples off the top of my head um but they you know there is huge value in in young talent across europe so um in order to keep them in your your farm system to use an american parlance i suppose it's um um it's certainly beneficial to be able to to kind of foist those players on to your your feeder clubs or your partner clubs, and they can build up their own, you know, their, their point system there to the point to the, you know, to the point when they're able to be transferred over, uh, and and be kind of welcomed into the the Liverpool uh, setup. So I, I think that's something which a lot of clubs are going to try and use now to to get around that um, in order to, to secure the best players. I mean, you look at the likes of you know, Zabola and, and Upamakano and these are something that Europe's. Um, top talent now in, in, in terms of the players who commanded big uh, there's big fees um around them there's huge potential there but they're players who were who've come through kind of very low levels of european football and been built up so that the pathway is obviously there and i think that um michael edwards will, he, he's always wanted to, to kind of see the value where others don't and um, i think it if liverpool went down this this route i think it could be really really interesting in terms of um how they they develop young players but also then it, it raises the question of what happens to your your own youth academy Um that's the the, the thing i mean because they've invested so much money in this new complex at kirkby i mean the the idea is i mean you've got um the third most valuable liverpool player in terms of squad value at the moment is trent alexander arnold um a product of their their system look at some of the the greatest players to have pulled on Liverpool shirts in the past 20 years, Stephen Gerrard, product Liverpool system. Um, so there's this the obligation there still to make sure that you are producing players um, in your locality because that ultimately, especially at Liverpool, that's what, you know, it, it's what people want. There is an expectancy to see there is um, a scouser or homegrown, homegrown talent representing the club um, in some respect. And while success is great, um, i think that if they lost sight of that i think that the the club would lose a little bit of its its soul i suppose so there's there's a a very kind of fine line especially at liverpool more than anywhere else i mean leipzig there's no history there in terms of producing players from from kind of the, the, that region or anything like that so red bull were able to do whatever they wanted it's uh you know it's a blank canvas it's there's no pushback it's we're delivering success here on our terms. Um, at Liverpool, FSG aren't delivering success on their terms. It's If they deliver success for the long term, it's going to have to be be mindful. It's going to have to be an element of being on the terms of the fans as well. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's there's pros and cons, um, but ultimately, I, I do think that this will be something that FSG pursue in the next five years. Yeah,
0: certainly. Something to, to keep an eye on. Really interesting stuff, as ever. Dave Powell, thank you very much for, for joining me. And I suppose all eyes now are on RB Leipzig, aren't they, for for the time being? But FSG, I'm sure, will be keeping an eye on the Red Bull group more widely well beyond Tuesday night. But, uh, yeah, Dave, thank you very much for, for joining me. Absolutely Fantastic. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.